Welcome to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. I can't wait to share this week's episode with you, and I hope you find the topics as interesting as I did. I especially enjoyed learning about one of my favorite colors, blue. Anyway, before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 11, The Fifth Color of the Rainbow. Social Sciences Blue, the color of the sky, the color of the ocean, and the favorite color of numerous people. And today, we are going to travel through time to learn even more about the many hues of this interesting color. If you ever read Homer's Odyssey, you may have noticed that the author portrayed the ocean as a wine-red sea, and not blue or green, as many people would describe it as. Why is this? Well, William Gladstone, a scholar and eventual Prime Minister of Great Britain, asked this question back in 1858. He was so intrigued that he actually went through the entire book of the Odyssey and counted how many times each color was referenced in the book. He counted that black and white were used most frequently, while red, yellow, and green were each used less than 15 times. The color that wasn't used at all though? Blue. Curious if this reflected through other ancient texts, he evaluated other ancient Greek books and noted the same curious finding, blue was not mentioned. A German philosopher, Lazarus Geiger, noted Gladstone's finding and took it a step further, evaluating texts across other cultures to include Icelandic sagas, ancient Chinese stories, and the ancient Hebrew Bible, and again, no blue mentioned. Geiger then decided to research when blue was first mentioned. After evaluating many texts, he noticed that the word for black or dark, in white or light, always showed up first in history, with the next color to appear in texts in every language he studied was red. Following red, yellow typically came next, and then green, though a small number of languages did reverse this order. The last color to appear, though, was always blue. In fact, the only ancient culture to have a word for blue was the ancient Egyptians, which we will learn more about in a little bit. Was this because our ancestors were colorblind early on and couldn't distinguish the color blue, or was there another reason that the word blue came last? Jules Davidoff, a researcher, traveled to Namibia in an attempt to answer this question. He performed an experiment with members of the Himba tribe who do not have a word for the color blue. They do have many more words for green though when compared to the English language. Davidoff showed the tribe members a circle consisting of 11 green squares and one blue square and asked each member to pick out which square was different. Most were unable to successfully accomplish this task and those who did took a lot longer finding the correct square and made more mistakes than expected. 
He next showed the members another circle, this time made of all green squares, with one square a slightly different shade of green. In this task, the tri members excelled, immediately picking out the correct square, much faster than expected. Davidoff's conclusion was that having a word for a particular color helps us to identify it as different. It was unlikely that our ancestors were colorblind to the color blue, but that they more likely did not notice its distinction without having a word for it. As mentioned earlier, the ancient Egyptians did have a word for blue, and in fact, also created the first synthetic blue pigment around 2200 BCE, now known as Egyptian blue. The pigment was made from combining ground limestone, sand, and a copper-containing mineral, and then heating it to 1470 to 1650 Fahrenheit. This color was popular among the ancient Egyptians, and was used in their ceramics, statues, and for tomb decorations of the pharaohs. It remained popular until the end of the Greco-Roman period, around 332 BCE to 395 CE when new methods of producing the color became established. One such color was ultramarine, created from lapis lazuli, imported from the mountains of Afghanistan. The use of it as a pigment didn't start until around the 6th century, and it would become popular among medieval European artists for its deep royal blue color. But being made from imported gemstones, it was extremely expensive, worth more than its weight in gold, literally, and thus artists needed wealthy patrons to use it. The color was mainly used for important commissions and most commonly found in the blue robes worn by the Virgin Mary from pictures painted at this time. Thus blue became synonymous with purity, humility, and the divine. In 1826, a synthetic version of the color was created and the expense was no longer an issue. Another blue hue, Prussian blue, was accidentally discovered by a German dye maker, Johann Jacob Dysbach. He was actually attempting to create a new red when the material he was using came in contact with animal blood, producing a surprising reaction in this new, vibrant blue color. If anyone ever wondered how blueprints came about, it was because of Prussian blue. In 1842, English astronomer Sir John Herschel found that Prussian blue had a unique sensitivity to light, allowing it to reproduce blue copies in a process called cyanotype, thus the name blueprint. A new blue hue has been discovered as recently as 2009 when a chemist professor at Oregon State University, Mess Subramanian, and his graduate student, accidentally created this new color. They were doing an electronics experiment when they noted that one of their samples changed to a bright blue when heated. They named it Yinmin, after its chemical makeup of yttrium, indium, and manganese, and released it for commercial use in June 2016. Since then, the color has even been turned into a Crayola crayon. The color blue has a long and interesting history, and for those who would like to learn more, Marie Berry of East Tennessee State University has published a lesson on the history of blue using pictures to take you through the color's history. I will have a link to this lesson on my website. 
I will also post an interesting article by Carolyn Granling that discusses how the color blue has been found in a fossil for the first time and also gives a good description on how birds that have blue feathers get their color. Sports and Entertainment Speaking of the color blue, for those who grew up in the 80s, you may recognize the name Buddy Blue one of the color kids of the very popular television series, Rainbow Bright. Rainbow Bright actually started off as a greeting card line created by Hallmark in 1983, which then quickly became a pop culture icon. The story starts with a little girl named Wisp, arriving on a dismal dark planet that had been conquered by the King of Shadows. Wisp made friends with Twink, a white sprite, and Starlight, a horse, and together the trio defeated the King of Shadows, freeing the color kids and returning color to the world. After this victory, Wisp became known as Rainbow Bright. Gigi Santiago designed the initial Hallmark characters along with the help of Cora Oliver. Soon after their development, the first TV special written by Woody King aired on June 27, 1984 with Rainbow Bright being voiced by then six-year-old Bettina Bush, one of the few actual child voices in the series. In an HuffPost article published on December 6, 2017 by Kenneth Morgan, a quote from Bettina Bush looks back on her experience voicing Rainbow Bright. Rainbows themselves feel like you've glimpsed a momentary miracle whenever you see one. They make everyone smile, she says. Rainbow Bright embodies that, so people will always love her. I'm blessed to have had the opportunity to give her a voice. The 1984 series aired over two years, consisting of a total of 13 episodes. In it, Rainbow Bright is now leader of the Color Kids, whose mission it is to spread colors using the color console located at Color Castle. Each color kid is responsible for spreading their own color, and each has a light color sprite that directs mining of their color crystals from the color caves. The villain of the series is Murky Dismal, who in the very first episode kidnaps the color kids. His plots against Rainbow Bright and the color kids remain the theme throughout each episode. For those who are curious who the color kids are, here is a quick rundown. Red Butler was the adventurous daring boy Lala Orange was a romantic girl with a crush on Red. Canary Yellow was a cheerful, optimistic girl. Patio Green was a mischievous girl who loved to play practical jokes. Buddy Blue, an athletic boy, excelled in sports and was the peacemaker in the group. Indigo had dreams of becoming an actress, and Shy Violet was the group's problem solver. Other color kids were introduced throughout the series, including Tickled Pink, Moonglow, and Stormy. Along with the original 1984 series, a Rainbow Bright movie was also produced called Rainbow Bright and the Star Stealer, which centered on a new villain named Dark Princess. Dark Princess steals the Diamond Planet Spectra, causing darkness to fall on Earth. It aired in 1985, being produced in only three months after the success of the first three television episodes. A three-episode television reboot in 2014 also aired on VN streaming service with Emily Osmond voicing Rainbow Bright, who is now a teenager. 
For those who are interested in learning more about Rainbow Bright or want to spend some time reminiscing over their childhood days, RainbowBright.net has a wealth of Rainbow Bright facts and material, including the ability to listen to the theme song of the television show, to listen to an album of Rainbow Bright songs, and there's also a link to a YouTube channel dedicated to Rainbow Bright. Science and Technology One of the most beautiful things to look at through a telescope pointed at the sky is a spiral galaxy, the most common type of galaxy in the universe and one of the brightest. Our own universe, the Milky Way, is a spiral galaxy, as are over two-thirds of all observed galaxies. There are two main components of a spiral galaxy, the central bulge and the spiral arms. The central bulge is typically made up of older, dimmer stars that are close together, and many spiral galaxies, including our own, contain a supermassive black hole in the center of the bulge. The spiral arms consist of gas, dust, and younger stars that orbit around the central bulge. While it is not known for sure how spiral galaxies obtain or maintain their spiral shape, one leading theory is the density wave theory, where denser regions of the galaxy rotate more slowly than their surroundings, causing stars to bunch up in the spiral arms. C.C. Lin and Frank Xu first proposed this theory in the mid-20th century. Approximately two-thirds of spiral galaxies have a third component, which is a bar-like structure that extends through the central bulge, with the spiral arms starting at either end of the bar. Our own galaxy is one such galaxy, known as a barred spiral galaxy. Spiral galaxies, originally described by Edwin Hubble in his 1938 book, The Realm of the Nebula, are classified according to how tight the spiral of their arms are and the size of their central bulge. Classical spiral galaxies and barred spiral galaxies each contain three categories of classification with type A galaxies having the biggest central bulge and smooth, tightly bound arms. Type C has a small central bulge and loosely bound arms. For example, a galaxy classified as capital S, capital B, A would mean it was a barred spiral galaxy, type A. While a galaxy classified as capital S, lowercase b would mean it was a classical spiral galaxy, type B. Our own Milky Way galaxy is believed to be over 100,000 to 200,000 light years wide, with the center containing a black hole called Sagittarius A, which weighs 4 million tons more than the mass of our Sun. Our solar system is located approximately 27,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. The nearest galaxy to us, Andromeda, is twice as large as the Milky Way, though has approximately the same mass. The Milky Way has two major spiral arms called Scutum Centaurus and Perseus, which have the highest density of stars, and two minor arms, Norma and Sagittarius, which primarily contain gas and areas of star-forming activity. There are also two small spur arms, one of which is the Orion arm, which contains our solar system and is located between Perseus and Sagittarius. While scientists have been able to learn a lot about our side of the galaxy, learning about the other half has been elusive. 
Thomas Dame, an astronomer at Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, stated in an article by Lee Billings published in Scientific American in October 13, 2017, that in terms of tracing and understanding the spiral structure, essentially half of the Milky Way is terra incognita. Now, scientists have found a new way by using radio emissions to help map the dark side of our galaxy. For those who would like to read more, I will post the article to my website blog on today's episode. For those interested in looking at spiral galaxies, NGC 6872, also known as Condor Galaxy, is an excellent example of a barred spiral galaxy and can be seen with a small telescope. NASA also has many photos on their website of spiral galaxies. Geography and World Culture Deep in Central Asia, in one of the most remote places on Earth, was the site of the discovery of the Tarim Basin mummies that have not only led to new scientific discoveries, but have also created tremendous political controversy. Today we are here to focus on the mummies though, and will lay aside the political consequences of their discovery for now. The Tarim Basin is located in western China and was an important site along the Silk Road thousands of years ago. It was one of the last places to be populated on Earth, not really home to a significant amount of people until the Bronze Age with this remote location far from oceans and seas. The Tarim Basin has a dry, arid environment with salty soils, making it a prime place for bodies to be preserved. The Tarim Basin mummies are not mummies in the traditional sense as seen in Egypt where the Egyptians had a process for preservation. Instead, these mummies were so well preserved due to the unique environment they were buried in. Victor Mayer, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and renowned for his expertise in Chinese studies, first laid eyes on some of these mummies in a back room of the Urumqi Museum in Xinjiang, China in 1988. In a Discover Magazine article written by Evan Haddingham and published on April 1, 1994, he said of his first encounter with these mummies, Even today, I get chills thinking about that first encounter. The Chinese said they were 3,000 years old, yet the bodies looked as if they were buried yesterday. It wasn't just how well-preserved these 3,000-year-old mummies were, though, that caught his attention. It was also the fact that they had notable Caucasian features. In fact, one of the most famous mummies, known as the Churchin Man, Mayer nicknamed Ur David as the man's features resembled his older brother David. The Churchin Man is believed to have lived somewhere between 1000 to 600 BCE. He was excavated from the Taklamakan Desert in the Tarim Basin by Uyghur archaeologist Dolkin Kamburi in the late 20th century, along with two other women and his son who were all buried in the same tomb. The man had light reddish-brown hair, a reddish beard, and is believed to have stood 6 feet tall when alive. Several cloth textiles were also buried with him, including plaid cloths very similar to cloths found in the Alps of Austria. Another famous Tarim Basin mummy is known as the Beauty of Lulin, a fabled city in the northeast corner of the Tarim Basin. 
She was among one of the first mummies to be found in the late 1970s or early 1980s by Chinese archaeologist Mu Sun and was believed to have lived in approximately 1800 BCE. She had long, blondish-brown hair and Nordic features and was dressed in a wool shroud with fur-lined leather boots. She was believed to be in her 40s at the time of her burial, likely dying from lung disease due to chronic inhalation of charcoal and silicate dust. A comb and straw basket was also found with her. What many Terran Basin mummies had in common were Caucasian features, which led scientists to investigate their genetic heritage. A genetic study published in BMC Biology by Lee et al. in 2010 focused on the evaluation of the Y chromosome DNA and mitochondrial DNA from mummies excavated from Zihi Cemetery in the Terran Basin. The maternal lineage of these mummies using the mitochondrial DNA was found to have both Eastern and Western heritage, with the Western heritage most likely Northwest Europe and the British Isles. For those who want to learn more about not only the mummies and their heritage, but also about the political consequences of these findings, there is an excellent thesis written in 2012 by graduate student Alyssa Christine Baker of Whitman College called Mummy Dearest, Questions of Identity in Modern and Ancient Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. I will have the link on my blog post for this episode posted on my website. Today's random topic. The random Wikipedia page strikes again, and today we will be learning everything you ever wanted to know about the ground beetle. The ground beetle is a large family of beetles with over 40,000 species worldwide. Unlike the blister beetle, which we learn can be harmful to humans, the ground beetles are actually beneficial. The ground beetle, which gets their name because they spend nearly their entire life on the ground, evolved in the late Triassic period and diversified further throughout the Jurassic period. Most ground beetles are shiny, black, or metallic with a smaller head than thorax. They have ridge wing covers known as elytra, and in some species, their wings are fused, rendering them unable to fly. As members of the suborder Adfega, the ground beetles have paired glands in the lower bottom of the abdomen, which in some species can generate noxious or caustic secretions to discourage predators. The bombardier beetles mix their secretions with volatile compounds, expelling them by small combustion. This produces a loud popping sound and gives the bombardier beetles their name. To humans, getting bombed is an unpleasant experience, but usually not deadly. In the autobiography of Charles Darwin, he wrote of an unlikely meeting with a bombardier beetle in a letter addressed to Leonard Jennings. Darwin says in the letter, A citrus rostratus once squirted into my eye and gave me extreme pain, and I must tell you what happened to me on the banks of the cam in my early entomological days. Under a piece of bark, I found two carabi and caught one in each hand, when lo and behold, I saw a sacred Panagaius cruis major. I could not bear to give up either my carabi, and to lose Panagaius was out of the question so that in despair I gently seized one of the carabi between my teeth when to my unspeakable disgust and pain 
the little inconsiderate beast squirted his acid down my throat, and I lost both Karabai and Panagias. On November 28, 2016, scientists Dr. Alan Ashworth of North Dakota State University and Dr. Terry Irwin of the Smithsonian Institution published an article in Science Daily discussing their discovery of the first Antarctic ground beetle, Ball's Antarctic tundra beetle. The species was given the scientific name of Antarctocotretrus bali. Antarctotretrus refers to its relation to the tribe Chichini and Bali to honor distinct expert of ground beetles, Dr. George E. Ball. Just like where Charles Darwin found his ground beetles, the most common habitats of ground beetles are under the bark of trees or among rocks or sand on the edges of ponds and rivers. The brightly colored tiger beetle with large eyes can run and sustain nine kilometers per hour, which in relation to body length makes them among the fastest land animals on earth. With their large size and conspicuous coloration, ground beetles are popular for both collection and study among professional and amateur collectors. Even in the early to mid 19th century, high prices were paid for rare and exotic specimens and Charles Darwin himself enjoyed collecting the beetles when he was in his 20s. Several species are weed seed predators and consume seeds from several different weeds, including common ragweed, common lamb's quarter, and giant foxtail. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my blog post on my website at www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. That's www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. You can also find a sneak peek about next week's episode that will be posted later this week. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about an American costume designer who won eight Academy Awards. I will end this episode with a quote from Catherine Valente in her book, In the Cities of Coin and Spice. All things are strange, which are worth knowing. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.